0: Forever. Dog.
1: Hello, QWERTY listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the QWERTY Podcast. I am Gabe Gonzalez, and you are listening to the Queerty podcast. That's right. This is a weekly show. It's from Queerty and Forever Dog, a truly blessed union between two fantastic forces where I will be covering news, politics, and pop culture that is impacting the LGBTQ community. And I'll invite a guest to come hang out a bit, reflect on the week, and just generally keep it cute. That's all we're doing. That's our mandate. We're taking it easy, all right? This week, we're talking about some of my favorite headlines on QWERTY.com, including some surprisingly encouraging news from an election in Texas, of all places. A predictably ridiculous take from a homophobe, Justin time for Pride Month, because that's how we love to commemorate it. And an interview from over 20 years ago that is still on Ricky Martin's mind. Plus, we've got an incredible guest today, a stand-up comic, a writer, and a television producer and co-creator. You may know her from The Daily Show, Bob Hart's Abishola, or as the first Brit to perform on Deaf Comedy Jam. Her new book, Cack Handed, is out now and we'll be talking about it all. Gina Yashere is joining us today. But first, got to get to those headlines in a quick roundup of my favorite stories from the week we like to call Catch Her Up. All right, our first headline of the week: Ricky Martin says an interview with Barbara Walters left him traumatized, and surprisingly, it didn't happen on The View. Uh, he recently spoke to People Magazine about a 2000 interview that aired on ABC, where Barbara Walters essentially asked him about his sexuality by saying he could put a stop to rumors about him being gay, telling him, "You could say yes, I'm gay, or no, I'm not, uh, right here and right now." And uh, the then ABC anchor sort of nudged him in an effort to to try and make news, to make headlines. Right? Ricky Martin talked about the specific moment, and he said when she dropped the question, I felt violated because I was just not ready to come out. I was very afraid. Ricky also told people that he still feels a little PTSD over that moment. And I, I know that today, like we're used to seeing people filming their coming outs and putting them on YouTube or replaying them on like a thousand daytime talk shows. But this was back in 2000, right? And he's also a Puerto Rican man. And I'm a Puerto Rican man. Let me tell you, that was also a weird time. You know, so many of us were hiding behind frosted tips and puka shells and internalized homophobia. It was bleak. Uh, a time before Hillary Duff's Stop saying that so gay, P.S say, if any of you can remember. Uh, But seriously, trying to ambush somebody into coming out is It's gross, it's exploitative. We know better now, right? No matter how famous they are, it's not something you should do, especially if you're a straight person on TV interviewing queer folks. Uh, Eventually in 2010, the same year Ricky Martin would eventually come out, Walters offered more of an explanation when she said, I pushed Ricky Martin very hard to admit if he was gay or not, and the way he refused to do it made everyone decide that he was. A lot of people say that destroyed his career, and when I think back on it now, I feel it was an inappropriate question. Uh, While Ricky Martin has had an arguably successful music and acting career, We're definitely talking about him regularly. He does say that he still thinks he isn't offered more acting opportunities, partly because of his sexuality. All right. Our next headline of the week, Texas reportedly elected its first openly gay black candidate ever. Jalen McKee-Rodriguez is believed to be the first black gay man to reach any elected office in Texas after winning a race for city council in San Antonio's District 2. And McKee-Rodriguez actually used to work for the city council member he beat. He resigned his staff position in late 2019 at that candidate's office because of what he cited as retaliation after telling the councilwoman about issues with another staff member's treatment toward him for being an openly gay man. Now, as we know, and we have discussed on the podcast, sometimes representation alone doesn't mean progress, right? We've seen plenty of members of the LGBTQ community shilling out for Republicans that would happily deny them their own rights and humanity. But thankfully, Mickey Rodriguez has promised to focus on issues that could create meaningful, positive impact in his community, like community safety, infrastructure and protections for the working class. He's also been very outspoken about his position on topics like opposing migrant detention centers, providing housing and establishing a free city run LGBTQ clinic in the San Antonio area. <laughs> And our final headline of the week, perhaps not surprising, but I I always get a chuckle out of this because you have some weirdos pop out of the woodwork during Pride Month. An evangelical pundit says we should replace Pride Month with something he's calling White History Month. This happened during a segment on One America News Network, a channel that takes the definition of the word news and stretches it farther than Amanda Lapore's face. In the June 1st segment, a guest called the celebration of gay rights evil and perverted, claiming that Christians should recognize... Something called White History Month for the month of June instead, because white people themselves supposedly have foregone doing so and allowed other cultures to celebrate their history for a month. And, And of course, the history we've been celebrating every day for hundreds of years needs its own month, naturally. After complaining about Pride bringing what happens in our bedrooms to the streets, the guest on this far right news show concluded the segment by saying, They've got Black History Month, Women History Month, Mexican History Month, so called Gay Pride. What's happy about being perverted? And it's like, babe, if you have to ask, come on now. It is worth mentioning One American News is a far-right pro-Donald Trump channel that has spread conspiracy theories, including ones about uh, voting machines during the 2020 elections in the U.S., and it is somehow still available on some cable and satellite providers. So make of that what you will. I do hope if you're listening, this this idea sounds as ridiculous to you as it does to me. Although, based on some people's vacation photos I've seen lately, uh, I would gather plenty of gay men are doing a great job turning June into White History Month all on their own. Anyway, those are our headlines of the week. And now it is finally time to get to our guest. I'm so excited. She is a comedian, a performer, and a writer who has appeared on shows like Def Comedy Jam, The Tonight Show, and The Daily Show. She's a co-executive producer, writer, and series regular on the CBS sitcom Bob Hart's Abishola. And today we'll be talking about her career, her new memoir, and why she is the last person you want to be around during movies that include elevator crashes. Please welcome to the show, Gina Yashere. How are you?
0: Very good, thanks. How are you doing?
1: Amazing. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being
0: here. I appreciate you taking the time out. Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy day. The book is out. But hey, I love talking about it. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I, you've got a beautiful cover
1: here. And uh, the title, Cack Handed, I actually had to look up. Because I feel like if you said it in a Midwestern American accent, it would sound like something... Uh, I might be doing on a weekend, but it is—it is, uh, is actually—it's British slang for somebody who's a, a bit awkward. Did, did I get that right? What, yes
0: and no. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, basically, it's a British word that means left-handed. Oh, okay. So I, I am left-handed, okay. and and in African, Middle Eastern, Indian, a lot of cultures, even in the Bible, the left hand is seen as unclean, mm-hmm. and um, and it's also the hand that's used to wipe your bum when you take a. Shit. So, cack is another word for. Poo. So you're saying poo handed. It does also mean awkward and clumsy because left handed people are considered to be awkward and clumsy, which is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> because <laughs> when I'm in, when we're living in a right-handed world, so if I'm in a bar next to you and I'm talking and I'm waving my left hand, I'm gonna knock over your drink. Not because <laughs> I'm clumsy, because you put your drink on your dominant side, and I, am which is next, right next to my dominant side. So that's why I call the book cat-handed. Because as a kid, uh, coming from an African family, I was allowed to use my left hand. Uh, my mum made me right, my right hand for a long time. I was ambidextrous till I was like nine. And uh, if my mum came to the kitchen and I was cooking with my my left hand, slapped on the head, food in the trash, start again. Oh wow! And Cat handed because it was awkward and clumsy. Mm-hmm. My life and my career has been a very conventional route to to where I am today. So that's another reason why I call the book "Cat Handed." Many reasons. Layers game. Layers. <laughs> I love it. And you uncover
1: some of those layers throughout the book, which I really like. Although I, I particularly would love to talk about your mom, who you dedicated the book to, but who also inspired some of these chapter titles, right? Like these little yes. nuggets of wisdom, these proverbs. Um, some of the chapter titles are, are inspired by her phrases, and they include languages differ, but coughs are the same. Yeah. It is not what you are called, but what you answer to. And my personal favorite, perhaps it is yours, if you sleep with an itching anus, you'll definitely wake up with your hands smelling.
0: That is my favorite one. It's a that great is one. my favorite one. <laughs> Basically it's <laughs> saying, look, everything that you do in the dark will come to the fore. Do you know what I mean? It will be, it will see the light. So that's, I love, that is my favorite one. My favorite. It's a good one. Oh, amazing, a yes. okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pro- my mom used to speak in Proverbs. And as kids we were like, oh my God, what is she said?" Like they, sometimes they made, they made the point. Sometimes they had no point, but they are funny. And so when um, I started writing this book, I was like, I'm going to find all the proverbs that my mom used to say and and just use them as chapter titles and and then work the chapters to make sure that they at least have some relevance to the proverb and I managed to make it work. I like that. You
1: pick the title first and then work around that. That's a great, it's
0: like your thesis
1: (laughs) statement, right? You got to build the paper around something. Exactly. (laughs) Did you, uh, did you actually, was there ever a point where you talked to your mom, maybe hopped on the phone or like looked at an old notebook, you know, in the earliest days of maybe conceiving this book and we're like, oh, okay, this is how I'm going to get.
0: Well, what I did, I just started what I remembered. I started writing it in chronological order, but then obviously I'd call my brothers or call my mum and go, this is how I remember it. Is that right? And then my brother would go, no, that's not how it went down. It went down like this. And I'm like, oh, f- Okay, okay, okay. Or i to forget things, and uh, and then with my mum's history, I'd call her up because obviously I wasn't there for a lot of it, and I, you know, I talked to her. So, so tell me, how did this? And you know, and so and just scribbling down that she talked. So yeah, I tried to make sure that every everything was accurate.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've got a lot of family members to be calling to check in because you talked about so many of them. And yeah, uh, yeah, I wonder what's, I can't imagine calling my mom up. If I called my mom up, she'd turn herself into like a co-editor of the book. It'd be an absolute (laughs) mess. (laughs)
0: Yeah. My mom was like, I mean, I had to, because there's stuff in the book that my mom wouldn't, you know, my mom's a very private person. We're Nigerians. Mm -hmm. We don't don't talk our business on the streets. And there was stuff in the book, especially like there was stuff about my horribly abusive stepfather. So I had to call him and say, listen, I'm going to be telling the story, the story that you've probably kept quiet since we were children, because, you know, you don't want that stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm telling the story, but I'm also going to show how resilient you are, your work ethic, how you came out of the other side of that to be successful and you won in the end. So that's the story that I'm telling. So, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Gosh. Yeah. And it's one thing, you know, I'm sure when you're an early comic, maybe, and you know, you're not going to be on TV and your mom's not going to hear a joke. I'm sure you're a lot more liberal with it than you might be now. Um, You got to check in with folks because they're going to see it. Yeah. There is one story you shared that I found so moving. I, I wanted to talk to you about in chapter 17, you talked about coming out and, you know, you talk about the kind of person that your mom is and and the kind of coming out stories that maybe we see or the parents we might see in TV or movies who have this like tearful or cathartic moment with their yeah. kids. <laughs> uh, and you write about how your mom is just like not that kind of mom, right? She just kind of accepted your sexuality, rarely spoke about it and kind of moved on. And that was great for, for you. You know, you write that that it was all you could have hoped for and that given your relationship it is. It was a great step, and I yeah. loved that because it, it didn't seem like the stereotypical story, right? So, like, yeah, it was yeah. a
0: massive thing. It wasn't. you know, she wasn't happy. She said, <laughs> <was happy. laughs> "Right, yeah." I mean, she's, yeah. super, she's Nigerian. She's super Christian. Mm-hmm. We know that the that religion has been contorted to fit sure. other oh, people's gosh, ideas yeah. of mm-hmm. what life should be, but. You know, she was schooled, educated by missionaries in Nigeria who came over and basically stole the religion from Africans and forced this on them. But she, so that is the religion she adheres to. That's her religion. So, you know, I, when I was coming out to, I, you know, I just threw it out there because I just thought, in fact, just ripped the band aid off. Um, but I was prepared for, that, that maybe she might disown me, just go and never speak to me again. I want to see you, don't step foot through my door again. So, The fact that she wasn't happy, you know, she complained to my brother about it. You know, she was like, what is this? This is, I don't understand, I don't get it. But the love of her child overcame that. So even though she's, she was never happy about it, she didn't want to, you know, I I, I didn't want to push it in her face either. I was like, the fact that she's even still considering me a daughter, still loves me as a daughter is enough for me. That's enough for me. And, uh, you know, she knew who my girlfriends were, but she never acknowledged them as my girlfriend. She's like, oh, hello, say hello to your friend you know that's how oh yes it's a friend okay your friend so but that was enough for me yeah and and over the years she's been a lot better like my my girlfriend nina we've been together seven years and uh, nina insisted on meeting my mom as my girlfriend and i was like oh god <laughs> but when nina met my, mom, met, met my mom she did a whole nigerian bow of respect before my mom and my mom fell oh, in wow. love with her immediately. <laughs> and Nina is a white Jewish woman And and my mum was like I like this white woman She's a better Nigerian than you, you And as a result, she fucking She loves Nina, loves her Always giving me stuff to give to her Always, you know, call, whatever she calls How is Nina? How is, how is Nina? To say hello to Nina for me So, you know, and I think my mum's older now She's in her 80s, she's older now She's at that stage in life where she's like ah, I don't give a f- anymore, you know what I mean? and it's it's kind of beautiful Yeah, that's and it's so wild how like I feel like with age people kind of get. I remember coming out to my
1: family. My grandma was like, she already knew. My grandmother almost became a Catholic nun, and she was fine (laughs) with it. It was my mom who took a little bit of time, right? A little, a little coming around. And she also, she also used to say, "Your friend." She's Puerto Rican. They're very, you know, they were raised very Catholic. She'd say, "Tu amiguito," your little friend. And I'm like, we all know You know, there's some subtext there. We got it. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, And so also when when you're talking about coming out to your mom, you were talking about how you came out to your siblings before. Yeah. And uh, one of your brothers. Others... Actually already knew Because uh, one of his friends Was tattling on you That she would yes. seen you out Maybe at a lesbian yes. bar so my
0: brother Yeah, my brother Used to hang with this girl Who's very butch, lesbian She was like And she was like Yeah, I saw your sister In the club <laughs> yeah, The other night I saw your sister In the club So he knew And he was like Yeah, whatever Shut up Whatever I don't care Whatever But he, she was always like Yeah, I saw your sister So he kind of knew And he, you know My brother's a chill We're all the same age We're all very close And so it was no big deal Because he was hanging With this girl He didn't give a damn. He didn't care yeah. So yeah, my and my younger and both my younger brothers were like, yeah, they they kind of like, well, look, you were always a tomboy. Like, <laughs> yes. and once you hit twenty four years old and you're still a tomboy, then it's pretty obvious what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: love that. What was um, what were those like maybe early bar days for you like? Because I still remember you know sneaking into gay bars and this. You kind of you know you dance around, but like, I guess I'm wondering what was like maybe going out into queer nightlife in London like for you in those very very early days where you were getting caught. By your brother's friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: I, it was it was uh, it was always clandestine because I was <laughs> doing stand up comedy and I'd got onto television quite early in my career, <laughs> but I was not out, so I was going to these clubs and just people were recognising me and I'm like, oh God, you know, this is, I'm going to get caught out, but I just wanted to be around my people. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go and have fun. If they spread rumours about me, they spread rumours. And there were rumours and I'd do interviews and they'd go, so your sexuality? And i just circumvent those questions. I never lied, but I, I dodged. You know, they'd say, what do you, you know, I remember one journalist, a journalist asking me, you know, what would you say about people who say you're gay? And I was like, I don't care what they say, as long as they say that I'm funny. <laughs> so we spread rumours about my sexuality. I don't care. You spread rumours about me not being funny. I'm coming for you. So that's how <laughs> I circumvented those, those, those questions. But that's going out in yeah. the club scene, I loved it. I, liked, I wanted to be with my people, but I was not out generally. So the gay scene knew I was out. My friends knew I was out. My, my family knew I was out. But p- professionally as a black woman, I was like, I'm a black woman in this industry. I don't want to give them something else to box me in with. So I hid it for a long time.
1: Gosh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to pull Ricky Martin, I guess, at that stage, yeah, truly. Yeah, but, yeah. And, it, and it is wild how people sort of feel entitled, right, to so much about you the moment that that bit of success comes. And it's like, you got to, especially something that that personal sort of needs to come out in its own time. That's exactly. wild. You yeah. come
0: out when you're ready to come out. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't like the way the Barbara Waters did, did him because, as you know, yes, we're becoming a lot more accepting of us. But there is still difficulty in getting work as an actor if you present a certain way or is a musician and and so she should not have done they should have at least asked him before Mm. they went on there and said would you be comfortable with talking about this you know they should have tried to out like that it was not a business to do that
1: no absolutely yeah even to this day i mean people still try it they're like oh it's different it's like again that's that's personal that's for somebody to decide it's not that different
0: Uh, And as a person of color being gay, it's it's we still got a lot of stuff going against us so no no absolutely All right, well, Gina, um,
1: we're going to take a very quick break here, and uh, when we come back, I want to ask you about maybe some of your early days in comedy, um, some of the stories that you shared about um, your time, and also uh, about your time working in the U.S., and specifically Bob Hart's Abishola. So we'll be right back after this break. All right, we are back with comedian, actor and writer, Gina Yashere. And we uh, have been talking a little bit about her memoir, Cat Handed, And now I, I want to ask about something else you mentioned in your, your memoir about your early days. First of all, your shift from being I, what you call in your book a lift engineer, because you are from the UK, yeah. from being an elevator engineer to to stand up comedy and then getting work within a year. I read that and I was like, oh my God, like mm. it was, oh, wow, oh my God, like this is wild. And, and you know, you talk about leaving that career partly because of, of racism, right? It was dominated mm-hmm. by these white men mm-hmm. and yet you entered a, another industry that was dominated by old white men. <laughs> and so
0: I know. Just, I just I just kept piling the punishment on myself. <laughs> I was like, you know what, life is not hard enough. Let me see if I can make it even harder.
1: <laughs> But you do, you know, you do talk about that, especially your early days, uh, uh, you know, doing some projects at the BBC and other places sort of feeling maybe tokenized or brought on to just say the one thing. Absolutely.
0: I was very much tokenized. I mean, very much tokenized. Uh, And that's part of the reason why I left England, because uh, Mm -hmm. I appeared in a lot of TV shows. I mean, I was consistently good. You know, I was good and I was consistent. So they booked me when they needed to fill a quota of blackness. Mm-hmm. They'd use me as, so if, if they ever got criticism, they are like, oh, no, we're not racist. We we, we had Gina on the show. Gina's <laughs> been on the show eight times. Uh, we're definitely not racist. So they were using me as their token. I, w- I became that girl who was on every TV show, So mm-hmm. but never had a TV show, but I was always on different TV shows. And it helped my life stuff because I was that girl that go, oh, are you the girl that was on this, this and that? So, it you know, I I was building a nice career and I was doing lots of television work, but I was unfulfilled because I wasn't getting the, you know, I was always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Mm -hmm. So they bring me onto these white guys shows and they'd be the hosts and they'd be the one and then I'd be their their token guest. And I was like, well, when am I going to get my own show? Can I get my own show, please? Because I've been doing this for years. you, You obviously keep booking me because I'm consistently good. So how about you give me an opportunity that you're giving these white dudes? And it just never, never came. And eventually... I was like, well, I'm not going to carry on being the token Mm -hmm. so that they can pat themselves on the back and go, yeah, but we are looking black, look, look. So that's why I decided I've got to get out of it. And I, I dreamed of moving to America since I was a child. So I was like, well... But,
1: you know, I'm out. <laughs> well, that's interesting, yeah, that you mentioned the U.S. Because, you you know, the book sort of, or the memoir, rather, ends with you sort of making that leap and, and moving to the U.S. Yes. And you've got this great joke in your set. I think it's for Netflix's The Stand-Ups, mm-hmm. where you talk about the difference between American and British racism yes. and how you kind of prefer one over the other. Yeah. And I'm wondering, does that um, dichotomy kind of still hold true in your mind Absolutely. after working here years? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. American racism is in your face. They're to your face. At least you know where you stand. Okay. You know where you stand with American racism. That's fair, yeah. You know, the, the, now, you're, now with everything that's happening with Prince Harry and, and, and Meghan, you're oh God, seeing yeah. the extent of British racism. You know, everybody, the, Amer- the Americans made the mistake of thinking the Brits, you know, so genteel and polite that racism can't possibly exist. They're so nice, they speak so well. When the British were the first and the biggest slavers. You know, the British Empire subjugated 75% of the planet for hundreds of years. So you can, they invented it. Americans learned their racism from the Brits. Yeah. They just hid it better. They just hid it. You know, like uh, I, do, I, used to, I do a joke in my uh, in my stand-up, where I talk about how we're... Americans went and stole black people from Africa and they did the equivalent of when you burgle burglarize someone's house and then you st- you bring the stolen goods back to your own home. Whereas the British did the opposite of that. They, they burglarized the house, stole people from Africa, but then hid it. They didn't they hid it in other people's houses. Oh God, yeah. So they never brought all their slaves back to England. They put them on colonies within the Caribbean. Hence why you have black people who are from Jamaica, who are from Barbados, Trinidad, St. Lucia, you know, because they they kept their colonies away from British polite British society but it made them no less racist, and black people suffered atrocities on those caribbean islands the same atrocities that they suffered on american soil so yeah i you know so they they hide it better but it's just as insidious and it's just as disgusting so yeah i prefer the at least i know where i stand with american racism it's right in your face and they're, they're not even pretending to try and hide it
1: Yeah, you got folks getting on news channels talking about a white history month. So there, you know, there's no effort to hide it at this point. You see where
0: where these (laughs) fools are and whack their heads down like whack-a-mole. So, you Uh, know, so yeah, it still stands true. It's also wild to me that like
1: most Americans didn't start learning about like British colonies until the crown. Mm. Like it took the crown for
0: (laughs) Americans to sort of realize. And that is just ridiculous. The majority of the wealth of the royal family came from colonization. Slavery, theft—you know—all all the museums, the, the 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 diamond in the the Queen's crown is stolen oh God, from India. Yeah. The, you know, all the bronzes that you get in the museums all over the world were stolen from Nigeria when the Brits went in there and just burned Benin City to the ground and stole all their bronzes and artifacts and sold them t- to pay for the expedition that they, you know, so. I don't understand how people just don't know this history. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, all Americans, you just want to talk about teen crumpets. That's the extent,
0: you know, everybody else yeah. is so
1: polite in comparison. Yeah. God yeah. forbid they could never. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you're seeing it all now yeah. with Megan. You're seeing, you're just seeing the hatred and vitriol extended towards her and her babies. You know, recently her second baby, Lilibet, was born. Yeah. And a British journalist tweeted, oh, that what a missed opportunity. They could have called it. Oh, God. Georgina Floydina. Jesus Christ. Yes. A a British journalist tweeted that. So that shows the extent of the racism, the fact that they're calling that baby it, so they they are dehumanizing that baby to the level of a thing because they don't believe that Black people are actually people. And the fact that they're using George Floyd's murder to mock this child, this newborn child. Why? Because of the child's proximity to Blackness. It's disgusting. <laughs> this is what we're up against. Guys. This is what we're up against.
1: No, but truly, yeah. It's, I, I mean, it's been wild to sort of see pundits on, on British news as well, kind of like deny that any of these problems exist and claim yeah. that Meghan is exaggerating when it's like, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. happening right before your eyes. Um, yeah. You know, it's just it's hard to deny what's what's right in front of you. All right, so on to maybe a more happier topic. I yes. want to talk about your successes once you got here. You appeared on yes. The Comedy Jam. You've done your stand-up on The Tonight Show. I remember oh, yeah. I saw you for the first time on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Yes. And that now you are a writer and a series regular and a co-producer for this CBS series called Bob Hart's Abishola, which actually stars a character that that is a Nigerian immigrant in the U.S., so it's partly yes. maybe inspired by your own background. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, I've read the like mythic story about Chuck Lorre just Googling mm. one Nigerian comedian and finding (laughs) you but I do want I want to know what from your perspective what was it like kind of I I don't know starting this process and maybe bringing your own upbringing to kind of an American sitcom right which I think maybe has a very specific tenor and kind of sense of humor yeah oh
0: yeah it's very specific I mean I've been trying to pitch uh, shows for a long time which featured my Nigerian family nobody was interested I had doors shut in my face and then this you know this is how the universe works Uh, I get a call out of the blue from Chuck Lorre I'd given up on the idea of getting my Nigerian family on television because nobody wanted it. And then out of the blue, this call comes, uh, Chuck Lowry wants to meet me. Uh, my agent goes, Chuck Lowry me. I was living in New York at the time. So they fly me over to... To Los Angeles, and basically Chuck is like, I went to Africa. I had a wonderful trip. I met all these beautiful people. I want to make a show with Billy Gardell, but I don't want to make another Michael Molly. Molly, I want the the female protagonist to be Nigerian, and I want to you know show the positive sides of immigrants and how they're coming to you know, to contribute, not to take. And uh, we'd like you to be a consultant on all things African. I mean, that's not, those writings weren't. In my head, I was like, you're seriously, you want me to be a consultant. So at first I was very, I was, I was suspicious. I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm not interested in this. I didn't say that in the room, obviously. I was like, okay, interesting, (laughs) fine. Um, And then I went back to my agent. I was like, absolutely not. This sounds exploitative, but I want no part of this. But luckily I have people around me who will advise me when I'm being a, idiot and my brother <laughs> called me from London and my best friend Lila called me from London and they both screamed at me in stereo for two hours like are you an idiot this is tough you're always complaining about the lack of opportunities for people like you and here is an opportunity to make a show and make a difference and you're about to turn this down and i was like you know what people you may be right so i stayed <laughs> in a room and, and once i got in the room with chuck and al higgins and eddie godetski i realized that they were genuinely wanting to make a good show and i was like look if i'm going to be involved in this you have to listen to me like if i say that this is wrong this is a, a racist or stereotypical trope uh and if i want things that you've got to listen to me if you if this show is going to work you have to listen to me and they were like cool, let's do it. Wow, so yeah. I stayed with them. And originally I started up as a consultant, but then two days in, they were like, oh yeah, we need you to help us create the show. So I got bumped up to uh, co-creator of the show and then producer and writer. So me, Chuck, Al and Eddie sat in a room for two and a half weeks and wrote this pilot. And uh, yeah, and I'm so glad we did. And I'm so glad that my brother and my friend screamed at me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Yeah, it's become, you know, a beautiful, beautiful story. And yeah, I injected a lot of my family story into it. Like Abishola's story of being left in America when her husband went back to Nigeria because he couldn't work as a civil engineer. That's the story of my parents. You know, my parents met in England, had us, and my father wanted to work as a lawyer. He was a lawyer. My mum was a, a school teacher. And because England was so racist in the 70s, they couldn't get work in their prospective careers. And my dad was like, let's go back to Nigeria. I can be a lawyer in Nigeria. We can have a great life. And my mother was like, no, my kids are British. I want to stay here and have them avail themselves of all the opportunities that there are that, that come with being British. So my parents blew up and my dad went back to Nigeria. My mum stayed and suffered in England in order to give us these opportunities. So the stories in Bottom and sure they're basically just drawn from my family, from my life. And uh, it's beautiful to be able to bring these characters to TV. And CBS is a very white, old, you know, station. And so, you know their audiences mainly old white people in the middle <laughs> of America, and the fact that these people are falling in love yeah. with these characters—it's <laughs> a wonderful thing. It shows the commonality we have as human beings, you know. And the, you know, and people, I think we're changing hearts and minds. Put it that way, we're
1: changing hearts and minds. Absolutely. And if I may, I think it's just uh, reading your memoir, something that's so impressive about your career is constantly taking these opportunities where I I think people are working overtime to sort of make you feel marginalized and pigeonhole you, whether it's the BBC, you know, whether it's you being rightfully suspicious of a white producer and and turning it into something that isn't just gold, but really centers your voice. Like you talking about your first gigs at the BBC versus, uh, you know, being on the Lenny Henry show and writing your own character and fighting to keep it. Um, Yeah. I just I, I think it's great to to yeah. sort of see moments right where where someone might enter something rightfully skeptical, but it is possible maybe to carve out those moments of uh, not just authenticity, but of really benefiting the people in the room who should be benefiting the most and having their voices centered. I think it's Absolutely. awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Gina. And before we let you go, mm-hmm. I would like to play a little game, finish with a very fun final segment, if I may. Of course. All right. So we are going to call this the Piers Morgan effect. Uh, <laughs> the UK has given Americans some incredible things. The Spice Girls, Idris Elba, all our sitcom ideas from the early 2000s. But there is one British export that Americans summarily and rightfully rejected. And his name is Piers Morgan.
0: Penis Morgan. A penis morgan Qu- there we go yeah. that's
1: that's his name. <laughs> uh, that's a great honestly like i it's more than he deserves i think it's mm-hmm. too catchy for him it <laughs> makes it make him seem too charming um but today gina i am going to ask you as a native of the uk to give me three examples of people things or phrases that are popular in the uk you think americans would immediately hate if they're brought here
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh wow good question I mean, I have ver- various terms that I use on a regular basis that I love. I don't know if uh, Americans would li- like One is whistle. Uh, that, is, <laughs> <laughs> that is for somebody who is an utter prick. And I use that <laughs> often in-, in relation to penis mormons. So I think Americans would hate that, but I think it's a great word. <laughs> and I think, it- I think it should be used. Um, oh, God. I mean, I can give you so many of those. Wank maggot. Oh, that's another one. Oh, I don't even think you need to
1: explain that one. That's a yeah. very descriptive, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: white manga uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, a word that I've actually made up. Th- there was a the word f- "quit," which is for a twat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually lengthened it. And uh, "quittery" is my new f- favourite word. And I'm trying to bring that into the lexicon, the American lexicon. People are starting to use it on Instagram because I use it quite a lot. When I see something that is absolutely ridiculous and absolute stupidity, I go, uh, this is absolute quickly. <laughs> I love expanding beyond
1: noun. We're turning it into a verb, an adverb. Yep. This is great. I love that. All right. Those are three terms that I actually think Americans might love. I will help you fight tooth and nail to popularize them Let's here. Let's do but it. Let's
0: do it. In the event
1: they're rejected, they'll still be more popular than Penis Morgan. So Exactly. <laughs> well, Gina, thank you again so much for coming on. If you've been listening, hopefully you know our guest has been Gina Yashere, an incredible comedian who I unfortunately have to let go because we've reached the end of our time. But I would like to know before we let our listeners go, I'm sure people can Google you, but where can Can folks find you? Where would you prefer for them to seek you out and and find your work? I'm easy. I have a website,
0: genieashire.com. On Instagram, Instagram is kind of my favorite social media right now. So at Jeannie Asheray, I keep it very simple. At Jeannie Asheray, just, just put my name in and you will find me. I've got the blue tick and everything. So there you go. So
1: <laughs> that's where you can get me. Absolutely. Thank you again. And Jeannie my memoir is called Cat Handed. Please read it, if only to have the joy of seeing all those proverbs on a page as the chapter titles. <laughs> They're really, really fantastic. Thanks for sending that along again. Thank you. And if you are listening, please make sure to support the QWERTY podcast. You can subscribe, rate and review our show anytime right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get your QWERTY fix and read more about the stories we talked about today uh, anytime at QWERTY.com. QWERTY has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. QWERTY is hosted by me, Gabe Gonzalez, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered and edited by Shireen Lani-Yunes, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Brett Boehm, Alex Ramsey, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Dan Tracer, and Melissa D.
0: Forever.